Welcome to the Trinity's Podcast, where we explore theories about the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Do you love God enough to think about Him? Episode 172, The Creed of the Long Lines, from the year 344. Before we move ahead with our story, we need to take a step back. In this episode of the Trinity's podcast, we'll look at one of the reruns of what I called in episode 114, the Recycled Creed. That creed, called by historians the Fourth Creed of Antioch, was composed in 342, and it went on to be the basis for a number of later creeds up through the year 359. In this particular rerun, called the Long-Lined Creed, or the Creed of Long Lines, or the Macro Stitch, after rerunning that creed, they repeated some anathemas that were added to it by the Eastern Council at Sardica, what I called the Aborted Council in episode 115. And then they went on to add some rather long-winded explanations. In these, they're denouncing various theological claims, but they're not only denouncing In effect, they're giving us their rationale for the creed just rerun. They're telling us the reasons why they say and don't say various things. And they call it the long-lined creed because they expand on these at some length. This creed is an interesting window into a main current of Catholic thinking on God and Jesus in the middle of the 4th century. It's yet another voice from the non-Nicene side of the dispute. We have to remember that most Catholic bishops in this era were neither disciples of Arius nor ardent supporters of the new creedal language introduced at Nicaea in 325. However, when controversy broke out, many felt they had to pick sides. Some initially took Arius aside, being fundamentally sympathetic to his view that Jesus and God are two beings, and that God is the greater of the two, and indeed the one true God. What was the alternative, saying that Jesus and God are the same being? Wouldn't that just be the old error of the monarchians, some of whom even said that the Father was crucified, or who referred to the one God as the Son Father? The oneness of Jesus and God for these mid-4th century non-Nicene theologians was defined more in terms of will and cooperation than in terms of essence or being. Their leading scholar was the famous Eusebius of Caesarea, a very learned intellectual descendant of the famous scholar Origen, who had died almost a century before. We'll hear more about this, Eusebius, in next week's episode. Back to today's creed, though, why was it so long-winded? The reason is that it was an act of outreach. The Eastern bishops who composed it at Antioch, at what's been called the Third Antiochene Synod, sent it by a delegation to the West, and it arrived the following year in 345. These Greek-speaking Catholics wanted to explain to their Latin-speaking Western brethren their thinking on these topics, and their hope was even to produce something that all sides should be able to agree on. They hold back on new language. At least they think they're holding back all the way on speculations about Jesus and God. At any rate, they're keeping things to an earlier point than Nicaea. So let's hear this suggested compromise creed and then give it some theological evaluation. We heard the main body of this creed back in episode 114, but inspired by these bishops, I'm now going to recycle that audio, but I'm going to stop and comment on it along the way. Here then, the Creed of the Long Lines, which is a replay of the fourth creed from Antioch. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, creator and maker of all things, from whom all fatherhood in heaven and on earth is named. 
This is the standard opening. It goes way back into the second century, into the earliest known baptismal creeds. Start by declaring monotheism. There's only one God. That's the creator. That's the father. The father all-powerful in the sense that no one has greater power and in the sense that he ultimately has control over all other things. And in his only begotten Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, who before all ages was begotten from the Father, God from God, light from light, by whom all things were made in the heavens and on the earth, visible and invisible, being word and wisdom and power and life and true light, who in the last days was made man for us and was born of the Holy Virgin. In this part of the creed, you see at this time the total triumph of Logos speculations. So they're assuming here that the word in John 1 is the pre-human Jesus, that pre-human Jesus later became a human. That's what theologians nowadays call the incarnation. Notice what they don't say in light of Nicaea. They don't say true God from true God. Why? Well, because John 17.3 says that the Father is the one true God, is the only true God. So then Jesus shouldn't be a second true God alongside him. Instead, they say God from God. It's obvious why they call the Father God. They think he's the one true God, the creator. Why do they call the Son God? Mainly because, in their view, a few scriptures call the Son God. Hebrews 1, John 1, possibly John 20, and a handful of other passages. What do they mean by calling Jesus God? Well, that's the million-dollar question, and we'll have to dig into their explanations to see what they could possibly be thinking. Who was crucified, and dead, and buried, and rose again from the dead the third day, and was taken up into heaven, and sat down on the right hand of the Father, and is coming at the consummation of the age, to judge quick and dead, and to render to everyone according to his works. This part, of course, is just explicit New Testament teaching, very standard stuff. It's like what you see in the Apostles' Creed, and it's like what you see in the earliest 2nd century creeds that we know about. But next comes a little dig at one of their contemporaries. Whose kingdom endures indissolubly into the infinite ages. For he shall be seated on the right hand of the Father, not only in this age, but in that which is to come. That's a knock against Marcellus of Ancyra, who we'll talk about in a later episode. For now, let's just mention that he interpreted Christ's kingdom as having an end. So, they're against that. Christ's kingdom should be without end. And in the Holy Ghost, that is, the paraclete, which having promised to the apostles, he sent forth after his ascension into heaven, to teach them and to remind of all things, through whom also shall be sanctified the souls of those who sincerely believe in him. And the Holy Spirit, as often in early creeds, is kind of an afterthought. Yes, there is a Holy Spirit. It or he was sent by the Son to empower believers to play a certain role in God's kingdom. It doesn't say the Holy Spirit is God from God or true God from true God. But those who say that the Son was from nothing or from other subsistence and not from God, and there was time when he was not, the Catholic Church regards as aliens. So that last bit is a bone they're throwing to the Nicenes. Yes, we're against these Arians, that is, against Arius and a few others who 
said or at least maybe implied that there was a time before the sun existed. As I've mentioned in previous episodes, this had been said by a lot of earlier Logos theologians, but in this time, in the mid-fourth century, Origen's type of Logos theory, which has eternal generation, had so triumphed that people considered a two-stage Logos theory offensive. So in that last bit, they're just distancing themselves from the real Arians. Of course, people like Athanasius, who are starting to line up behind the language of the Nicene Creed and insist that it's all important, we're going to notice something really obvious about this statement, which is that it completely avoids the term usia, essence or substance. It does say that the Son was produced by the Father, this before the ages, but it doesn't say that they share a substance or essence. To sum up then, this creed is not Arian, and it's also not Nicene. It's conservative in its language. It avoids some controversial terms, tries to stick with a scriptural way of expressing the origin of the Son, and you might think it's deliberately vague about the exact relationship between God and His Son. Well, sure it is, but so is Nicaea. You might think that this creed allows that there was a time when the Son did not exist, but personally, I doubt that its composers meant to leave that door open. Rather, the idea is that the Son is before creation in a metaphysical sense of the word before, rather than being literally before it, that is, existing at some time prior to the first moment of creation. Consonant with their assumption of many of Origen's speculations on these topics, I think they're assuming that the Son's generation is eternal in the sense of being timeless, but they choose to express it in what they think is relevant biblical language, as we'll hear in a minute. What they have in mind is this statement by Lady Wisdom in Proverbs chapter 8, which so many interpreters in this era uncritically assumed must be the pre-human Jesus. Does not wisdom call, and does not understanding raise her voice? On the heights, beside the way, at the crossroads she takes her stand. She cries out, To you, O people, I call, and my cry is to all that live. O simple ones, learn prudence, acquire intelligence, you who lack it. Take my instruction instead of silver, and knowledge rather than choice gold. For wisdom is better than jewels, and all that you may desire cannot compare with her. I love those who love me, and those who seek me diligently find me. My fruit is better than gold, even fine gold, and my yield than choice silver. I walk in the way of righteousness, along the paths of justice, endowing with wealth those who love me, and filling their treasuries. The Lord created me at the beginning of his work, the first of his acts of long ago. Ages ago I was set up, at the first, before the beginning of the earth. When there were no depths I was brought forth, when there were no springs abounding with water, before the mountains had been shaped, before the hills I was brought forth, when he had not yet made earth and fields, when he established the heavens, I was there, when he drew a circle on the face of the deep, when he made firm the skies above, when he established the fountains of the deep, when he assigned to the sea its limit, so that the waters might not transgress his command, when he marked out the foundations of the earth, then I was beside him like a master worker, 
and I was daily his delight, rejoicing before him always, rejoicing in his inhabited world, and delighting in the human race. When the Trinity's podcast returns, the new material they added, including the anathemas from Sardica and their long-winded explanations, where I think we find the real meat of the theological thinking here. Now we continue the long-line creed with the anathemas that were added at Sardica. Likewise, those who say that there are three gods, or that Christ is not God. Okay, stop right there. Can't say three gods. That's something all Christians can agree on, I think. Of course, the real question is how to understand the Father and Son and Holy Spirit so that there aren't three gods. Because, of course, what you say is one thing, but the more important thing is what you believe. Now, about this, you can't say that Christ is not God. One thing you have to realize about the source material is that in Greek, as Origen makes a big deal about, Hotheos, which we translate as capital G-O-D, God, like the one God, Hotheos, the God, is distinct from Theos, without the definite article which would typically be translated as a god, or just god, like you're directly addressing somebody. Although, depending on the context, it can also refer to the one true god. There's this ambiguity in the Greek, and you find this in all the sources when they're calling Christ Theos. They're not calling him Hotheos, which would have meant identifying him as the same one as the Father, because the Father is the one true god. Also, in Latin sources... Latin lacks the definite article. There is no the in Latin. So they just constantly go around calling Christ Deus. Now, this term Deus in Latin, or Theos without the the at the front of it, these might mean the following things. It can be equivalent to capital G-O-D, God, like God Almighty, the one God. But in the same exact way, you would say a God. And, in the same exact way you would say a god, I just made little air quotes with my hand, in this time, they did not have quotation marks. And so if you wanted to make the point that Jesus was called God, you would just say that he was theos. So when they anathematize people who say that Christ is not God, what sense of being God are they talking about? As we'll see in a minute, they can't possibly mean those who deny that Christ is the Father, because they deny that Christ is the Father. They're just about to say that those are different beings. They could plausibly be taken to mean that you can't deny that the term God, the word God, applies to Christ. That's probably part of their meaning. Are they meaning to say that he's a God, so that you're anathematized if you deny that Christ is a God? Not so clear. Of course, earlier writers like Justin and Origen had referred to Jesus as a second God. And you see more than one being called God, for instance, in Hebrews 1. 
But that can't be requiring that he's God if that requires being strictly a peer of the one true God, as we'll see shortly. So mostly I think their point is just saying it's bad to say that Christ is, quote, not God, or to deny that God, that term, theos in Greek, applies to Jesus. But of course, you can apply the term theos to Jesus and be a Trinitarian of many different kinds. You might be a modalist, you might be a Unitarian. To just say the word theos applies to Christ really doesn't settle anything, so we've got to keep going here. They continue with things that they anathematize here. Or that before the ages he was neither Christ nor Son of God, or that Father and Son or Holy Spirit are the same. Here they're aiming at Monarchians, and specifically at Marcellus of Ancyra, who we'll talk about in a future episode. While he believed in some sense that there was an eternal word, he didn't call that word Christ or Son of God until its incarnation. And they want to say, no, this one is Christ and Son even before the ages. You can apply those terms to him even at earlier times. Those who say the Father, Son, and Spirit are the same are the ones who are saying that it's all just one being. This is what we call modalists. This is what I would call oneself Trinitarians also. And it's also a way that you could describe Latter-day Oneness Pentecostals. So they're against that. They don't want to say they're the same being to collapse them. Or that the Son is ingenerate. You can't say the Son's ingenerate because you have to say that the Father, that is God, eternally generated him. Now who would go and say a thing like that? Ancient Monarchians, for one. Now, here are some other people who would say that. A good number of modern-day evangelical Protestants. These are people like, for instance, Dr. William Lane Craig, who have noticed two things. First of all, if based on Catholic tradition you want to say that the Son is divine in the same sense as the Father, to the same degree as the Father, you can't then have the Father eternally causing the Son to exist. Because the Father will exist a se, that is, independently or through himself, whereas the Son will exist because of another. So if you're really worried about the equal divinity of the two persons, you have to wonder, should I really say that the Father eternally begets the Son? But here's something even more disturbing. There's really no scriptural ground on which to say the Father eternally generates the Son. Of course, Origen thought there was. Of course, a lot of people assume that there are such proof texts, but... Really, modern scholarship shows these proof texts to be extremely flimsy. Okay, but at this point, Origenist speculations rule the roost in the East. And they have their small handful of texts that they insist obviously mean this. So let's move on. Or that the Father begat the Son, but not by choice or will. These the Holy and Catholic Church anathematizes. There's another element that might be alien to you, the idea that eternal begetting or eternal generation has to be by an act of choice or will. So it has to be something God freely did. Pause on that one. We'll come back to that. They'll explain what they're thinking there just below. Now we come to the part where they give their long-winded explanations. So I'm going to go roughly paragraph by paragraph. And uh, midway through the document, I'm going to omit a few that are directed very pointedly at Marcellus, because I'm going to go into Marcellus of Ancyra and Photius, his disciple, in future episodes. But here's how they start. And again, this is reinforcing their vehement denial that they're Arians. 
for neither is safe to say that the Son is from nothing, since this is nowhere said of him in divinely inspired scripture, nor again that he is from any other subsistence before existing beside the Father, but from God alone do we define him to have been truly generated. For the divine word teaches that the ingenerate and unbegun, the Father of Christ, is one. So they're denying that the Son is from nothing, or that he's from something other than the Father. No, he's only from the Father. And note their expressed desire to try to stick with scriptural terms and not speculate beyond them. They continue on a similar point. Nor may we, adopting the hazardous position that there was once when he was not, from unscriptural sources, imagine some interval of time before him, but only the God who has generated him apart from time. For through the Son both times and ages came to be. Yet we must not consider the Son to be co-unbegun and co-ingenerate with the Father, for no one can be properly called Father or Son of one who is co-unbegun and co-ingenerate with him. But we acknowledge that the Father, who alone is unbegun and ingenerate, has generated the Son inconceivably and incomprehensibly to all, and that the Son has been generated before ages, and not in such a way as to be ingenerate himself like the Father. Rather, he has the Father who generated him as his beginning. For it is written, the head of Christ is God. Now, what I mentioned just a bit ago, the fact that eternal generation seems to imply that there's an inequality between the Father and the Son, namely that the Father exists independently and the Son does not because he exists because the Father, they consider that to be a feature, not a bug. And again, they tighten up their anti-Aryan stance. They're definitely not saying there was a time before the Son existed. Rather, they're saying that time was created through him that it's God, not some previous time, that's, quote, before the Son. All they mean by that is that God exists logically prior to the Son, and the Son exists because of the Father. So there's no time before the Son. The only thing that's, quote, before the Son is God. In eternity, he wills that the Son should exist, is their idea. Therefore, he's in charge of the Son. A lot of contemporary readers would say to themselves, wow, this is a subordinationist creed. Sure it is. All Logos theory is subordinationist, some more explicitly so than others. Again, they denounce people who are taking phrases from unscriptural sources. Maybe that's why they avoid talking about eternal generation, although they do talk about generation and I think imply that it's eternal. In their minds, they're the conservatives. The Nicenes are the innovators. And they're trying to persuade the Westerners to take their more conservative outlook. They don't want to describe the Father and Son as co-unbegun, because that would suggest in their minds that the Father is not before the Son, that is, metaphysically speaking. It would make two ultimates, would be one way to put it. And they say, well, there can't be two ultimates. There's only one ultimate. There's only one source of everything else. Right, they're monotheists. They continue. Nor again in confessing, according to the Scriptures, three realities and three persons the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Do we therefore make three gods? Since we acknowledge the self-complete and ingenerate and unbegun and invisible God to be one only, namely the God and Father of the only begotten, who alone has being from himself, and alone bountifully bestows this on all others.
Now, if they were going to be Trinitarians, they would have to be three self-Trinitarians. Why? Because they say that the Father and Son and Holy Spirit are three realities, or three objects. Their Greek is tria pragmata, three objects, kai tria prosopa, that is, three persons. So there are realities, they're not just modes or aspects or appearances, and there are three of them, three beings. And they don't get into it, but I think they're presupposing that the Holy Spirit eternally is brought into existence by the Son here, too. So the background presupposition here is there are three eternal beings. And moreover, they're divine. Divine in some sense, anyway. And that's why they think the Son is properly called God. Now here comes the old issue of monotheism, which has dogged Logos theory from the very beginning of when it was preached, seemingly in the middle of the 100s. As soon as people started talking about this second creator who's the direct creator, a lot of ordinary Christians said, no, there's only one creator. That's the Father Almighty. Just like the baptismal creeds say, just like the Bible says. And then there were people who rejected the Logos theories, and they came up with their own competing theories. History calls them monarchians. They said, we uphold the monarchy, the rule of the one God. We don't want anything to do with these extra gods you have. So they want to head all this off because they are completely owned by originous Logos theory. So they just straight up deny that this implies three gods. Why does it not imply three gods? Because there's only one who exists independently and who gives existence to all other things. And this is the Father. Whatever you think of Logos theory, this is monotheism. It's also Unitarian theology. Unitarian theology is that the one God is the Father, period. Trinitarianism is that the one God is the three of them all together. The one God is the Trinity, the Trinity with a capital T. There is no Trinity with a capital T here. That is to say, there's no triune God. There's a unipersonal God. Sometimes people, I think, improperly say a Unitarian God. Well, it's the kind of God that Unitarians believe in, right. But it's the kind of God that Origen believed in. And it's what you see in the New Testament. There's one unique source of all else. So even though there's God, and there are these two others, and they insist the Son can be called God, still there's only one God, because there's only one unoriginated source of all else, one Father. They might well have quoted John 17:3 here, where Jesus says that the Father is the only true God. Or they might have quoted 1 Corinthians 8, where Paul says to us, that is, to we Christians, there's one God, namely the Father. But they want to immediately balance this point with this. Nor again in saying that the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ is the only God, the only ingenerate, do we therefore deny that Christ also is God before ages. That Christ is God before ages, or a God before ages, or quote, God before ages? What do they mean? You can project what you want onto it. It doesn't obviously have any precise meaning, other than just insisting that Christ is properly called God, and this not from some later stage in his career, but even before the creation of the world. And it's here that I've cut out some anti-Marcellan statements, which again we'll cover in a future episode. Now they're going to actually get into the guts of some exegesis of some famous passages. For it was to the Son that the Father said, 
Let us make man in our image, after our likeness. Not according to modern interpreters of Genesis 1. However, this was a popular reading, and it was something that Origen thought. You've got to have God there talking to the Son. And some also argue that humankind could not possibly have been made in God's image, that is, in the image of the ineffable Almighty Father, but we must have been made in the image of the Logos. Of course, it doesn't say that. What do modern interpreters say? They say that God here is addressing his heavenly court. Okay, but they're just asserting, not arguing. They continue. And it was him who was seen by the patriarchs, who gave the law, spoke by the prophets, and at last became man, and manifested his own father to all men, and who reigns to never-ending ages. For Christ has taken no recent dignity, but we have believed him to be perfect from the first, and like in all things to the Father. Contentious stuff, of course. Like I said before, the Logos theory had completely triumphed, and a part of it is that any, quote, God that was seen in the Old Testament was really the pre-human Jesus. And so it was really Jesus who gave the law to Moses, Jesus who led them through the wilderness, Jesus who spoke in the burning bush, and so on. Christ has taken no recent dignity? Well, in Acts, Peter says that God has made him both Lord and Christ, seemingly making him Lord by his exaltation. But they want to say that he's perfect from the very first, because they think it's implied by deity, and presumably by whatever kind or degree of deity that the Son has from the Father. They assume that implies changelessness. And so they can't have him improving or even changing in any way. And never mind how that fits in what you see with the New Testament. At this point, they've become so focused on this eternal son, the Logos, that they're kind of not worrying about the man, Jesus, and how he obviously changed and grew. When the Trinity's podcast returns, why do they want to say that eternal generation is a free act or an act of will? Those who irreverently say that the Son has been generated, but not by choice or will, thus encompassing God with a necessity which excludes choice and purpose, so that God begat the Son unwillingly, we account as most irreligious and alien to the Church, in that they have dared to define such things concerning God, beside the common notions concerning Him, which are not taught in divinely inspired Scripture. Again, they hit this theme hard that they're against people going beyond Scripture. Let's be honest, they're definitely going beyond clear teaching of Scripture. They can't see this because they're so sold out to the originist type of Logos theory at this point. They say they want to stick with scriptural teaching, and okay, common notions are okay. Presumably they have in mind things that can be known by reason alone. Good. When you're doing exegesis of Scripture, you have to assume that 1 plus 1 is 2, and you have to assume that... What's eternal never came into existence, and things like this. But yeah, what's so bad about unwilling generation? 
Later on, the tradition just drops this claim that the generation was by will and doesn't seem to be really worried about God being in any sense forced to do this. They continue. For we, knowing that God is absolute and sovereign over himself, reverently judge that he generated the Son voluntarily and freely. Yet as we have a reverent trust in the Son's words concerning himself, the Lord created me a beginning of his ways for his works. We do not understand him to have been originated like the creatures or works which came to be through the Son. For it is irreligious and alien to the ecclesiastical faith to compare the Creator with handiworks created by Him, thinking them to share a manner of origination. For divine scripture teaches us really and truly that the only begotten Son was uniquely generated. So what Lady Wisdom says in Proverbs 8 is Jesus' own words about Himself being created what they're doing is they're defending use of creation language in relationship to the Son. Why? Because in their view, it's in the Scripture. And of course, they could have also cited their great master, Origen, who was willing to call the Son a creation or say that he's created. And other earlier figures had done this as well. It's a later idea that you have to say absolutely everything depends on putting the Son on the creator side of the creator-creature distinction. Theologians nowadays repeat this and intone it as if it's just self-evident. Their point here is it's not self-evident that you can't call the Son a creature. I mean, look, he's originated anyway if you think he's eternally generated. If the theory is that God created things through him, as many readers suppose Paul to say and John 1 to say, well then of course he's already got to be around when the cosmos is created. So he's not going to be part of that creation, not going to be part of the Genesis 1 creation. If he's created, it would have to be an earlier creation. And they're saying, what's so bad about that word? Because we can still say that he's unique in having an origin straight from God like this, whereas other things have to come through him. Even the Holy Spirit, they're assuming, comes through the Son. Now they turn to address a concern. Yet in saying that, the Son exists in his own right, both living and existing like the Father, we do not on that account separate him from the Father, imagining some place and interval between their union in the way of bodies. For we believe that the Father and Son are united with each other without mediation or distance, and that they exist inseparably, all of the Father embosoming the Son, and all of the Son clinging to the Father, and alone continually resting on the Father's breast. I'll be honest, it's hard for me to see the point of this. This just seems like a red herring. Maybe it's just that some of their Western opponents had accused them of a separation, as if God had like broken off a piece of himself and made that the Son, and broken off another piece of himself and made that the Holy Spirit. Maybe something like that had been said by Gnostics, I'm not sure. Do they really mean that the Father and Son are united in a spatial sense? That seems to be what they mean. But then they talk about embosoming and clinging to, and that sounds like an in of cooperation or a matter of their psychology. This is a really obscure point that they're making. What if the son was separate from the father? Why would that be bad exactly? I don't think they really clearly say it. But they're leading up into this sort of climax. Believing then in the all-perfect triad, 
the Most Holy, that is, in the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and calling the Father God and the Son God, yet we confess in them not two gods, but one dignity of deity and one exact harmony of dominion, the Father alone being head over the whole universe holy and over the Son himself, who is subordinated to the Father. Still, not including the Father, the Son rules over all things after him, which through him have come to be, and he grants the grace of the Holy Spirit unsparingly to the saints by the Father's will. For the sacred oracles have taught us that this is the account of the divine monarchy towards Christ. The translators here have done well in translating the all-perfect triad instead of the all-perfect capital T Trinity. To translate as capital T Trinity would be an anachronism because it would imply that there is a tri-personal God that the authors have in mind here. But there isn't. We've already heard that these are three beings. We've already heard that the first causes the second. And you'll just have to take my word for it that the originist background assumption is that the second being causes the third being. So there is a trinity here, but it's a small t trinity, or a triad, a threesome, a group of three realities. And it's a hierarchical group. At the top is God, the one true God, the source of all other things. And in eternity, he causes the existence of the Son, who in eternity causes the existence of the Spirit. Yet we've got to call the Father and Son God. Conspicuous by its absence is an insistence that you have to call the Holy Spirit God. Also conspicuous by its absence is the idea that you have to call the whole thing God, that the Trinity is God. There's no Trinity here, just a triad, just a small T Trinity. These are the three greatest beings, the single greatest being the Father. Why don't they call the Holy Spirit God? Presumably because Scripture doesn't. And they don't want to go beyond that. But Father and Son are both called that. Why aren't those two different gods then, given that they're two different beings and one's greater than the other and one caused the other? Why isn't that one God causing another God? They say there's one dignity of deity. It's hard to see how that's exactly relevant. They say there's one exact harmony of dominion, the Father alone being head over the whole universe holy and head over the Son himself, who's subordinated to the Father. This seems to be an old point that I found as far back as Tertullian. And I talk about this in my paper called Tertullian the Unitarian. They're taking a page from the Monarchians and saying, there's really just one monarchy here. There's one reign. Of course, the second and third greatest beings are going to cooperate with him. They get, in a sense, deity from him. There's going to be a harmony of will and cooperation so that it's all really the Father's rule. Of course, the Son rules over all things that are less great than Him, starting with the Holy Spirit, which He gives. So that's the view. Notice another thing that's not there. If you see any contemporary evangelicals say that the Son is subordinated to the Father, very often they will quickly add, functionally, not ontologically. I think they mean it both functionally and ontologically. He exists because of the Father. He has the greatness and perfection he does because of the Father. That makes sense then that he is going to play this serving role. He's going to be doing the Father's work. He's going to be an instrument of the Father. Finally now, the can't we all get along part. All of this, in addition to the above summary of the faith, we have been compelled to expound at length. 
not in any officious display, but to clear away all unjust suspicion concerning our opinions among those who are ignorant of our affairs, so that all in the West may know both the audacity of the slanders of the heterodox and the Easterners' ecclesiastical mind in the Lord, to which the divinely inspired scriptures bear witness without violence, where men are not perverse. The Easterners then are feeling a bit attacked. They're feeling a bit slandered. Hmm, who could it be that's been spreading unjust suspicions about their opinions? Well, that would be Athanasius, and seemingly his sometime colleague and friend Marcellus. Having both been temporarily kicked out of their bishop's seats, they both ended up in Rome in the early 340s, and they seem to have consulted together, and historians think kind of came up with the whole Arian idea that all these Eusebians and mainstream Easterners are just a bunch of dirty Arians. No, they're not Arians. No fair-minded person could conclude that. They are Unitarians. They are subordinationists. You could say both of those of Arius. But the disputed theses that were refuted at Nicaea, they don't agree with those. They're just originists. Of course, a lot of their opponents are kind of originists as well. But it's complicated. The whole episode's kind of discouraging. On the positive side, they are trying to reach out, they are trying to find compromise, and they're trying to be modest in their speculations and to stick to scriptural language as much as they can as a way of being safe. On the other hand, it's depressing that they don't realize how much speculation is just built into their opinions already. They consider eternal generation to just be something that's just right on the surface of the scripture. It's just totally obvious. They think it's obvious that generation has to be by will. Who but a blasphemous person would say that eternal generation was not by will? They think the Father, Son, and Spirit are three realities. Of course, many are going to deny that, including their very opponents they're trying to persuade. Why they don't have three gods is clear enough, I suppose. Although it's not clear quite what sort of divinity the Son and the Holy Spirit are supposed to have. And they've kind of avoided a lot of the Holy Spirit issues. Here's what R.P.C. Hansen says about the contents of this creed in his book, The Search for the Christian Doctrine of God. This is an informative document as far as the theological position of the school of thought dominant at Antioch goes. It is remarkable for firmly refusing originist thought. The doctrine of eternal generation of the Son is carefully avoided. Uh, well, let's stop there for a second. I disagree. I think it substantially is the same thing. It just avoids that terminology because it doesn't want to say the Son is co-eternal because they think that will imply that the Son is underived. Hansen continues, There is no mention of three hypostases, but the impression is given we can say no more that there is only one. I'm not sure why he says that. If hypostasis means a being, they have said that there are three beings. He continues, On the other hand, the word usia does not once appear. The subordination of the Son is strongly affirmed. The authors clearly wish to avoid blatantly Arian doctrine, but experience difficulty in finding the proper terms in which to do so within the limits of refusing the eternal generation insisting upon the Son's subordination and rejecting the consubstantiality of Father and Son. 
honestly, in Hansen's mind, he's thinking that the 381 statement is the standard, and anybody who hasn't arrived at that wonderful conclusion is going to be confused. But he continues, They obviously think that the homoousios of Nicaea implies a production of the Son from the Father by a kind of blind necessity. They use the word prosopon, person, more than once, and also pragma, object, and have in this respect begun to refine a little their Trinitarian vocabulary. But the very scanty treatment of the Holy Spirit, whom they only include in the Trinity by courtesy of the Son, and their inability to say whether the Son originated in time or not, mark them as heirs of the thought of Eusebius of Caesarea. Let me pause there, and we'll hear more about him next time, and see if it confirms my reading of this creed as opposed to Hansen's. He continues, They clearly wish in defining the unity of Father and Son to approximate as closely as possible to the position of the bishops of the West, without falling into the suspicion of Sibelianism, which hung around the one Western theological statement which had appeared since the controversy began, the formula accompanying the encyclical of the Western bishops at Certica. The men who wrote the macro-stitch, that's this long-lined creed, were not of the same school as those who produced the dedication creed in 341, but were of those who stayed on rather longer in Antioch to publish the fourth creed, a more drastic statement. But they are, from that position, trying to make all the concessions to the West that they can. When the Trinity's podcast returns, how was this received in the West, where it arrived in the year 345? For his part, Athanasius was not impressed with the whole thing. In his book De Synodis, on the Synods, he gives us this whole creed, and it's really just in order to mock it. He lines up several non-Nicene creeds, and his point is these dopes just can't make their mind up. Isn't that pathetic? After quoting an earlier creed, he gets to the long line creed, and this is what he says. As if dissatisfied with this, they hold their mean again after three years, and dispatch Eudoxius, Martyrius and Macedonius of Cilicia and some others with them to the parts of Italy to carry with them a faith written at great length with numerous additions over and above those which have gone before, they went abroad with these as if they had devised something new. Of course, in the view of Athanasius, it's just the same old junk. Did this Eastern outreach persuade those at Rome and other Western areas to accept the Eastern replacement for the Nicene Creed? This is what 5th century church historian Socrates says about the Western response. This is in chapter 22 of his Ecclesiastical History. The Western prelates, on account of their being of another language and not understanding this exposition, would not admit of it, saying that the Nicene Creed was sufficient and that they would not waste time on anything beyond it. R.P.C. Hansen elaborates. He says, the deputation which in 345 brought the macro-stitch to Milan did not succeed in its aim of reconciliation. The Council of Milan condemned the doctrine of Photinus, though it was unable to depose him, and gave audience to the Antiochenes with their creed. 
Before the council would consider the macrostitch, however, they demanded that the eastern bishops should condemn Arius. The eastern delegation refused to do this, not assuredly because they were unwilling to condemn Arius, but because they thought it insulting to be suspected and arraigned in this way. They returned to Antioch, their purpose unaccomplished. Who is this naughty Photinus that these western bishops are damning? Well, we'll meet him in due time. But first things first. Next week, we'll look at a major player in the earlier part of this whole post-Nicaea controversy, someone who was a major influence on the thinking of non-Nicene Catholic bishops at this time. This is Origen's philosophical grandchild, Eusebius of Caesarea, the famous church historian. This week's thinking music has been A Perceptible Shift by Andy G. Cohen. If you love the Trinity's podcast, please share the podcast on social media. Another thing you can do is give us an honest rating and review in the iTunes store for your country. You can support the podcast by giving us a one-time or a monthly donation through PayPal. Just look for the orange buttons on the right side of any blog post. Lastly, make your voice heard. Give us a comment on the blog post for this episode. Or join our very active Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash trinities. Don't forget then to share, to rate, to chip in when you can, and to talk back. For listening. We'll see you online at trinities.org. Till next time, don't forget to love God with all your mind. <laughs>